risking temptation. Well, as I said earlier, welcome to the sixth and final Sunday of Lent. In the week to come, I think we will experience something like, unlike anything we have ever experienced before, a real and present sense of grief and anxiety and foreboding of what Jesus's last week on earth must have been like. This week, we will journey with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death. We will experience Maundy Thursday in our together yet separateness. We will know what it means to mourn death on Good Friday, to be apart from loved ones when all we want is to flock together. And I hope we will know what it means to yearn for resurrection, for new life, for a different way of being come Easter Sunday. We are in a hard place of that there is no doubt. But one of the things this gospel story tells us is that there have been hard times before and we have survived them. It tells us that no matter what, whether we gather in our sanctuaries or stay safe in our homes, the God who was with Jesus and the disciples then is with us now. This is also the last week of our study of A.J. Levine's Entering the Passion of Jesus, A Beginner's Guide to Holy Week. Over the last six weeks, we have spent time with so many stories from that last week of Jesus' life. While today is often called Palm Sunday, this year we started our series with that story, the story of the righteous entry. We were still meeting together in person then, do you remember? Next, we find Jesus clearing the temple, speaking out against all that is not God's best. We were in the sanctuary together for that week too. Week three, we found Jesus telling stories and we focused on the story of the widow who gave all she had to follow God. During week four, we spent time with the woman who anointed Jesus's head, what Levine called the first supper. Last week, we looked at the story of the last supper. Today, we will spend our time with Jesus and a few disciples in the garden of Gethsemane. In every one of these stories, Levine has highlighted for us both the history and risk in the tales. The history is where we discover the foundation for the story, that which grounds us in first century Israel-Palestine. It's what helps us understand the culture and mores of the place and time in which Jesus lived his life. The risk is what makes the story more exciting. In some sense, the risk is what makes the story worth telling at all. If all of this was a foregone conclusion, after all, if it were to come to a certain end, why bother? Risk opens our eyes to the real possibility of a great loss or a great reward. And in those moments in the telling of the story, we don't know what the outcome will be. These last weeks, we've watched Jesus risk his reputation, righteous anger, challenge, rejection, the loss of friends, and today he will risk temptation. Since we are so far from that story of the righteous entry, and since we cannot gather to wave palms and shout hosannas, we will have Passion Sunday this year. It is so called because it is the point in Jesus's journey in which his passion is on full display. It is the place in which Jesus is most fully surrendered to his call. In Mark's Gospel, the garden comes immediately after the Last Supper. 
If you recall, the last verse of last week's pericope was, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In Mark's Gospel, the leave-taking after the Last Supper is followed by Jesus telling the disciples that they will all become deserters. And Peter protests. Jesus tells Peter pointedly, This very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Still, Peter protests, and the others all agree that they would rather die with Jesus than deny him. This is where we pick up. We will spend our time in the first portion of this story today. So they left the Mount of Olives and went to Gethsemane, which means oil press in Aramaic. Only in John's Gospel is it called a garden. The text tells us that Jesus commanded the disciples to, quote, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter and James and John, and he was distressed and agitated. And he spoke to his friends and he said, I'm deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. So Jesus takes some close friends with him to pray, but feeling so deeply distressed that he couldn't even be present with them, he went on alone. He asked God to remove the cup from him that he might be spared the death he knows is coming. Yet his desires tempered with a recognition of God's will, of seeing through the mission God had given him. Now, I don't know how y'all were taught to pray, but many of us learned a formula that required us to pray for ourselves last if at all. We're taught that praying for our health or our desires is sinful. But here Jesus does just that. He prays that his life will be spared. Levine writes, Jesus teaches us that we can, when we feel the need, pray for ourselves. As a Jew, he already knew the importance of personal prayer. We need personal prayer to sustain us, to help us find courage, to lament. Jesus provides that example that in, in, in cases of extreme concern, of course, we pray for ourselves. Jesus, the man of sorrows, is deeply grieved even unto death. He prays for God to spare him and, and for God's will to be done in the same breath. I find this deeply cognizant of the reality of the world, that God is faithful, no matter what happens to us. Whether we live or whether we die, we can pray in full recognition that we are held in the love of the Holy One. We can pray in recognition that even though life is hard and death unpredictable, still we want to live. There's beauty in that prayer. There is gratitude. For when we come face to face with our mortality, when we feel that impetus toward life, we honor the God who is the giver of life. It is a holy thing to cry out to God for our own lives. Levine says Gethsemane is Jesus' biggest risk of all. He could have run away. He, couldn't, he could have hidden behind his armed disciples. But he doesn't. Jesus goes off alone and vulnerable and prays. She writes, The risk is knowing that he can save himself and choosing not to do so. The text goes on. 
He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake for one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Once And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus asks his dearest friends to stay awake with him while he endures his deep grief, simply to sit and be present with him while he prays. They fail. He pleads with them, telling them he is deeply grieved, but still they sleep while he is in agony. Jesus is depending on them, but they fail. Yet somehow they too will be redeemed in the end. As we have seen, Passion Week is full of stories of risk, tragedy, loss, courage, and even second chances. The unseen risk here, the one we almost always miss, is on God's part. Yes, God could remove the cup. God could stop the arrest, trials, suffering, and death. As Jesus suffers, God suffers too. God is always near the suffering. In fact, God is always near in all our life's experiences. Whether we shout Hosanna and await the one who will free us from tyranny like the people did at the righteous entry. Whether we risk calling out all that keeps people from flourishing like Jesus did in the clearing of the temple. Whether we are giving wholeheartedly of what we have even in lack, like the widow with her coins. Whether we are giving wholeheartedly out of our abundance, like the woman with the alabaster jar at the first supper. Whether we are breaking bread with our best friends, like Jesus at the Passover. Whether we fail our Lord in the garden of temptation. God is there. God is there. God is always already present from our first breath to our last. Romans 8.38 reads, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. That, my friends, is good news. As we walk into these hard and holy days, let us remember that God is near, nearer than our very breath. And let us love boldly with the love of God.